Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcasts on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week I am doing a really exciting podcast on what has become known as the Brussels effect to help us understand what it means and to talk about how Europe's regulatory superpower will help to ensure that we don't just live in a Chinese or American century. We're very pleased to welcome Anu Bradford, who is a professor at Columbia Law School and author of a new book called The Brussels Effect. And also down the line from Berlin, we have Jana Pulierin, who is the head of ECFR's Berlin office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So, Anu, you're going around the world talking about the Brussels effect. We've just done a, an event in our office in Berlin. Do you want to explain very uh, briefly w- what it is? Sure, Mark. So, Brussels effect refers to the European Union's unilateral ability to shape the world marketplace. So, the European Union is a large and affluent consumer market, and most global companies need access to that market. And as the price for trading in Europe, they apply the European rules. They need to abide by those rules. But they also often extend those same rules to govern their global conduct and production to avoid the cost of complying with multiple regulatory regimes. So all the EU needs to do is to regulate the single market. It is the global companies that then take those rules and export them across the global marketplace. So some of the most famous examples over the years come from areas like, for example, competition policy, regulation on genetically modified foods, I suppose most recently data. Do you want to give some examples of areas where the global rules are being set unilaterally from Brussels? Yeah, so what is interesting about Brussels effect is that it really penetrates different sectors. So it is uh, present in the digital economy. So the EU's regulation of data through the General Data Protection Regulation has really been exported around the world by companies such as Google, Microsoft, Apple and Facebook. The same applies to the EU's regulation of hate speech online, Twitter and YouTube and Facebook that use the EU definition of hate uh, when it comes to uh, deciding what kind of hate speech they take down on their platform. But it also manifests itself in the area of environmental law and policy, in consumer health and safety, including the regulation of chemicals or the regulation of food safety. The reason they're doing that is because it's cheaper for them to have one set of global rules rather than having different rules for every single market. Yeah, absolutely. So the global corporations, they um, think about our benefits of uniform production like scale economies. It is often too costly for them to set up a second production line to uh, produce products for another market or tailor their global conduct differently from market to another. So what these companies do instead is that they comply with the most stringent rule, which often is the European rule, and compliance with that stringent regulation gives them access to all the markets around the world. That only works in a globalized world, right? In the world um, as we have it today, where kind of a nation's trade sensitively 
completely with each other and are also dependent on each other. So what if coronavirus is just the beginning of the story and kind of a decoupling happens? So the permissive consensus of, on globalization is shrinking. People talk about finding a new balance between globalization and protectionism. So what kind of effect would that have on your effect if we would see a deglobalizing world? Yeah, so that is an interesting question because the Brussels effect really describes the world that is closely integrated, where the global markets uh, function uh, with extensive supply chains, with nations and companies trading with one another and supplying the global marketplace. I think I agree that there are all these pressures towards decoupling and rising protectionism and attempts by governments to build some walls around their economies. But it would really take a radical rewriting of the, the rules of the global economy for us to stop trading with other nations, for the, the countries to really scale back on economic globalization and start producing the products and services within their national borders. The countries are just simply not equal. They don't have the kind of cost structures that we cannot obtain some of our products from the countries that are better positioned to produce them. I agree with you that I think we will see some kind of rebalancing. We see some attempts maybe to repatriate some of the overseas economic activity. But it is very hard for me to imagine the state of the world where the globalization would be reversed to the extent that no variant of Brussels effect would operate anymore. But don't you see also a trend inside the European Union that countries want to get back control? I'm not talking about Brexit here, but about kind of Germany and France and the idea of economic champions or industrial champions and not the European Commission being in charge of setting the rules, but that member states want increasingly kind of their say back, not their money back, but their say back on things. Wouldn't that undermine the Brussels effect you're describing as well? Yeah, so I think it's been interesting to witness this shift in the conversation, especially advanced by politicians in France and Germany on, for instance, how the EU should go about enforcing its competition rules. So competition rules have been very central to the regulation of the internal market. They have been very effective for the EU, not only to shape the European market, but to shape the global marketplace and the competitive behavior of many companies. So I do have fear that if the EU was to rethink its competition regulation and start using it as an instrument for industrial policy, it could be undermining Brussels effect. But thus far, if you look at, for instance, the case in which these demands really culminated was the merger, the proposed merger between Siemens and Alstom, a German and French powerhouse. The commission stood firm and the commission basically blocked the transaction and did not give in to these demands for protectionism. So I do not get a sense that the commission is prepared to go this way. And for instance, in an area where these demands are very prevalent, competition law, that's where the commission has extensive powers. You mentioned two reasons why the Brussels effect takes hold. One is the size of the European single market, which is still the biggest single market in the world, even though its relative share shrinks every year as China's market grows. And I suppose with Brexit, it will shrink quite a lot more. The other reason was that the standards are higher than in other places. Do you want to talk a bit about which is more important out of those two rules? Because the standards could carry on being the highest in the world for, for a very long time, even if the 
market becomes less and less important. But post-Brexit, the European single markets can be quite a lot smaller than China and America. Yeah, so for any jurisdiction to be able to unilaterally regulate the global marketplace, you actually need both. You need a large market and you need to be willing to regulate that large market with stringent standards. You also need to have not just the will to do so, but the capacity to do so. So you need to have the institutions that allow you to leverage that market size into a tangible regulatory influence. For instance, if you think that you have some very pro-environment countries like Costa Rica that wanted to go all out with very stringent environmental regulations, the companies could just abandon the Costa Rican market. It is not large enough of a market. Yet today, there are very few global companies who could say that they do not need to trade in the EU. They do not need access to the number of affluent customers in the European Union. So the market size is important, but EU is not the only large market. We could see Washington effect, Beijing effect, Tokyo effect. There are other large markets. But what sets EU apart today is that the EU EU has not just the market, it has the regulatory institutions, and unlike Washington, it has the political will to use those regulatory influence uh, institutions to promulgate stringent rules. Do you think that the EU does a good job in leveraging this power that it has to achieve kind of uh, global goals? Or is this more like with the GDPR that the EU regulates kind of its internal market and by default then has this has an effect on the outer powers? Do you think that the EU can do a better job actually in using the power that it has in a way that it maybe can achieve other things through this regulatory power? Interestingly, I think part of what has made the Brussels effect so effective is that it has largely taken place under the radar. The European institutions have not politicized this instrument. So what they've done is they've really focused on regulating the single market. And then it's been the market forces and the self-interest of these global companies that have then externalized these EU rules. So the EU institutions have not really needed to put much thought into coercing anybody, any foreign government, to adopt them, to uh, elicit cooperation from uh, foreign governments in this regard. So it has really been this more passive, quiet power, which hasn't been deployed so self-consciously as a political instrument that has allowed it to be so effective and where we have not really seen a backlash. And do you think it can be used much more political or will that then weaken the whole instrument? Because once countries become aware of what they have in their hands as a tool, they will start infighting? Well, it could be, certainly, because it is now Uh, something that if it's incorporated into conversations about global uh, politics or geoeconomics or geopolitics, its salience gets elevated and the issue gets more politicized and there's more attention drawn to the EU's power. And that may then invoke uh, this criticism that one already hears in some circles that EU is a regulatory imperialist and it is trying to impose its standards on the rest of the world. And there is certainly a question of whether the EU is compromising the political autonomy of uh, foreign governments. But in many ways, the EU's defense is that, look, all we're doing is we regulated the single market. It is not our fault if global companies decide that it is in their business interest to use these standards across the global marketplace.
But there have been areas, Amy, where the European Union has pushed quite hard to get people to adopt its standards. I mean, one of the really famous fights was around genetically modified organisms, where there was a battle between Monsanto and and the kind of American predilection for allowing uh, genetically modified organisms into into food chains, and the EU that was trying to push back. And in Africa, in all sorts of other parts of the world, both sides were, were competing to get people to sign up to their norms. Yeah, I think the G. GMOs are a fascinating example of where the EU and the United States have taken a very different role, and they both have advocated their relative positions. And I wouldn't say that either has fully prevailed, but there are many examples of African farmers, for instance, steering away from GMOs because they need to preserve their export opportunities to the European market. If you look forward at the next kind of 10 to 20 years, what do you think the equivalent of the old GMOs fights will be? What are the areas where Brussels is going to be locking its heads with, I don't know, either Beijing or Washington to get people to sign up to its standards rather than other people's? So I see two main regulatory priorities for this commission and I think for the next uh, decade. So one is fighting climate change. This commission is very committed to the, the European Green Deal and trying to advance the European policies when it comes to climate change and other environmental policy goals. So that's an area where we expect to see standard setting where the EU is ambitious and where the EU really needs the other countries or other the, the, the markets to adjust their behaviour as well to be effective. Sorry, just before we finish that one, Anu, can you go into a bit more detail about what sort of standards are you thinking about? Are you thinking about sort of carbon pricing or and the, the, the idea of potentially having um, carbon adjustment taxes or are you thinking about other kinds of uh, environmental norms? Yeah, so um, I think the carbon tariff that has been proposed, it's certainly one of the most controversial aspects. That is not relying entirely on the market forces because when it comes to market forces, you do not need to have elements like border taxes, but I think it is part of the there to convey the commissions and the, the commitment uh, to this goal. But the more there are elements that will influence the product design, so for instance, whether there would be carbon neutral steel only incorporated in, in products or the kind of pesticides we see to be used in agriculture, all these are elements where you expect the corporations to potentially adjust their conduct globally because there are efficiencies in not segregating your production and in designing your products at the outset so that they uh, meet the European standard in terms of their carbon contact uh, or other demands that the EU will pose on them. But you mentioned the second uh, area. Yeah, the second area, I think, which is another huge priority for the EU is digital economy. So I think all of us are now watching what the EU will do when it comes to the regulation of artificial intelligence. Just last week, the Commission unveiled its white paper on this area. And um, I think AI, there are so many different applications of AI, so it is hard to predict the extent to which the AI will lend itself to the Brussels effect. But it is certainly an area where the EU has the interest to advance the European norms and where it has the interest to do it globally. And if you look at the um, the various big American companies making trips to Brussels, having meetings about this, it shows that they certainly are watching for their interest because they know that the regulation is coming their way. But do you really think that this could be a way for the EU to play a role in this uh, big race for artificial intelligence? Because so far, I mean, if you look at the, the 
AI companies, they are all either in the United States or in China. And kind of the big players are not uh, in Europe and in the EU. So do you really think that the EU then can regulate an area where it is not a gigantic power, but two other giants call the shots? Yeah, so the EU has managed to regulate a lot on what Google does, even though EU does not have a, a search engine. There is no European um, social media platform compared to Facebook. Yet, Facebook is playing by European rules. So, EU can certainly be a player in this field in terms of regulation, and it, it can set the rules for the game, it can be the referee. But that doesn't absolve the EU from the obligation to also get in the field and be a, a competitor. You cannot only build your supremacy in AI for regulating the field. So I think, though, if the EU knows that it can set the rules, it should have all the incentives to also build the kind of companies that can, or build the environment where those companies can emerge that can then compete on the field. Because the game is not rigged against the, the Europeans. If Europeans set the rules by which the companies are competing, there is nothing that should prevent the EU from succeeding if it then gets the other elements of this right. So one other question which I've sort of been wondering about, I think we talked about this a while ago when we met in the US, Anu, is how the significance of this changes as the global system breaks down. Because, you know, traditionally, if you talk to Europeans, they're very rude about American extraterritoriality. They say how we're committed to multilateralism and multilateral institutions. But as the World Trade Organization gets bogged down with and, and is being kind of hollowed out with the kind of sustained assault on it from the Trump administration and the fact that China is is dragging its feet on reforming the WTO so that it could actually deal with the kind of big non-market economy like the Chinese economy. Does unilateral action become the next best thing? Does it take the place of multilateralism in, in Europe's arsenal when it comes to thinking about how we run the global economy? Uh, I think, Mark, in many ways it does. I describe EU as the contingent unilateralist. I think it is in the EU's DNA to be multilateralist. It would welcome partners to fight climate change. EU is the big supporter of, for instance, the Paris Accord. It wants to have partners. The EU wants to revive the WTO's dispute settlement system. So it's not that the EU would prefer to go it alone. But when these multilateral institutions become increasingly dysfunctional, the EU does not have a choice. And that's where I think the EU's unilateralism and the Brussels effect can fill the void. And I think what the United States doesn't fully understand is that when the Trump administration is turning its back to international corporations, to WTO, to trade deals, the Trump administration is actually trading globalization to Europeanization. And I'm not sure that's what this administration really wants to do. But I, I wanted to change uh, the topic slightly and come back to the EU and kind of the populist movement or the so-called populist movement that we see everywhere in every European member state um, emerging. And kind of these populist parties very often question globalization and they want more borders and more control and more protectionism. So do you see a trend in Inside the European Union with the populace that would undermine the Brussels effect potentially because they go exactly after what you have suggested as the EU's most influential kind of foreign policy tool. Yeah, so it's certainly a trend that is worth watching and that could potentially undermine the, the Brussels effect. So I doubt 
that the threat that populist movement poses is as extensive when it comes to Brussels effect compared to the ways that they otherwise manage to undermine the European project and the core values. I, I say that for the following reason. These anti-EU populist parties, especially in countries like Hungary and Poland, their main concern is not regulation. They are not most worried that the EU is setting rules on food safety or environmental protection or going after big companies for their anti-competitive behavior. The, the most salient issues for them relate to migration or press or judiciary. But it is possible that there is this uh, spillover effect and the casualty that the more these parties gain control, the more they start voting against anything that involves transferring powers to Brussels, there could be some degree of uh, undermining the Brussels effect. But I doubt that it happens at the scale that we would really talk about a drastic shift because a lot of these policies too, that the commission has a strong ability to generate rulemaking without always involving the council and the parliament. And to the extent council and the parliament are involved, you don't need unanimity. So even if we have certain countries that would be taken over by the populist agendas, there may not be enough of the critical mass that we would see repealing of these existing laws or even an extensive a pushback where we could not see these institutions to be able to engage in rulemaking going forward. So we've been talking about the internal questions, but there's also this, these external constraints. And certainly in China at the moment, there is a strong desire not just to be a rule taker, but instead to start shaping the rules. And 5G is maybe a very interesting example of that, where Huawei has played a really important role over the last few years in shaping a lot of the global regulatory discussions, so much so that some Chinese academics have even talked about the Beijing effect as a kind of parallel process. How does that whole 5G debate fit into your grand theory? So the book takes on this question whether we are going to see the Beijing effect take over the Brussels effect sometime soon. And I make the claim that we may see some areas where the Chinese are making inroads with their own rule setting standard, but otherwise we are not going to likely see it across broad segments of the economy. I think 5G is an interesting example where the Chinese have been very aggressive in developing the technology, in exporting the technology. I would say the same thing about the broader export of surveillance technologies that China has exported to many countries. So um, these are areas where I think the Brussels effect will not work at least perfectly because there is not a unified European response. In many of these examples that we've discussed that are a core of the Brussels effect, that's where the regulatory capacity is in Brussels and where the EU institutions can craft a European response and really leverage that unified big market size. But when it comes to 5G and whether to let Huawei to power your economy and provide this infrastructure, we've seen different responses by different member states. And to the extent the EU is fragmented, we do not see this kind of big, nearly 500 million market that is responding in a certain way. So yes, that's an example where I think the Brussels effect is not enough to deal with the question of Huawei. I have another question. You basically portrayed the Brussels effect as an effect created by technocrats. Would you say then it is value driven or kind of that is a tool for the European Union to export its values? Yeah, so I think 
all European regulation reflects a certain set of values. So if you think about any of the regulations we've discussed, whether it's digital economy or food safety or regulation of chemicals or the environment, the EU has pursued a dual goal. It has uh, passed these regulations to better integrate the common market and to protect the integrity of the single market, plus then to achieve these goals relating to consumer health and safety or the environment or fundamental rights uh, or privacy. So, And that partially has made it so effective. But I think the EU, at least initially, was not really focusing on exporting its values. So the idea was really to create rules for the common market And it was this side effect that these rules penetrated the global marketplace. But I think we are seeing a shift where the EU is more aware of the power that it has and more tempted by this idea that it also has the opportunity to export in values in ways that is um, very uh, costless, um, under the radar, very passive, yet at the same same time very effective. (laughs) I like that you portrayed one of the most important or most functioning foreign policy tools as a side effect. I think that is very telling for how Brussels works. But one of these side effects was also kind of the escalation uh, in Ukraine and the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, wasn't it? I mean, it was a bunch of technocrats uh, negotiating an agreement with Ukraine and that later then caused a lot of trouble because the Russians then would say that this was interference in their zone of influence. Something technocratic can also be something, it's not necessarily something benign, right? Right. And uh, But I think the difference that I would draw with the Ukraine case was that that was not just a technocratic process. It wasn't just EU setting the rules for the EU markets, within the ma- which the market forces then were externalizing to Ukraine. It was a political trade agreement with a very explicit goal to tie Ukraine economically and politically more to uh, Europe. So I think that is partially that elevated and escalated the tensions surrounding the agreement when Europe did not choose the route of just letting the market forces export its standards, but it actually did elevate it to a political agreement where I think the dynamics are always more difficult. Okay, well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Anu. I know that you've got quite a few more countries around Europe to go and promote your book in, but maybe before we end the podcast, we can do our bookshelf segment, which is very popular on this podcast. Obviously, every self-respecting person in the world should go out and buy The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, published by Oxford University Press and available in all good bookshops, and we'll put a, a link to that on our website. Do you have any other books on your bookshelf at the moment, Anu? Absolutely, Mark, and I I wholly uh, endorse your call for everybody to read The Brussels Effect. But I think there's another book that those who like to read about a positive narrative and somewhat counterintuitive narrative about the EU um, should consider. And it is the the book which I think was the, the, the best book that I read last year by a French economist who is a professor at New York University, um, Thomas Philippon, and he wrote this fantastic book called The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. And it is showing how it is the lack of regulation in the US, in particular, the failure to uh, use competition law to control concentration that has led to very concentrated markets in the US. 
which has elevated the prices for consumers and how the EU, by regulating the markets, actually today has markets that are more competitive. So I think it's fascinating because often we associate regulation with lack of innovation, with lack of uh, uh, growth and economic success. And I think he has a powerful narrative and really carefully done empirical uh, work to support an argument that is quite the contrary. That's great. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Jana? Well, we did not coordinate this, but my book is also uh, about the United States. I've just uh, started to read Ben Rose, The World As It Is, uh, kind of the memoir uh, from the Obama White House years. And I think it's actually fascinating. I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm maybe halfway through, but it is very good to read this now because of all the comparisons of the Obama years and Trump foreign policy and that it all already started under Obama. And it's actually not true. I mean, there are certain trends that have started under Obama, but it's just becoming very obvious in this book that it was for completely different reasons and with a different effect to the European Union. And I think it's just in this kind of crucial year for the United States, for me, very interesting to to read about the other America that we tend to forget now that we only focus on on Donald Trump. And uh, it gives me hope because I still believe in that other America. Okay, my recommendation is also from another America, but not one which is looking backwards, potentially one that's looking forwards, though he does still need to beat both uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, if the Sanders doctrine is going to take effect. But there was a, a, a very interesting piece in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago on the 11th of February called The Sanders Doctrine, which tries to, to pass uh, Sanders' uh, worldview and shows actually in many ways how it has evolved since uh, the the last time that he tried to run for the presidency, um, he's gone from having a much more um, insurgent and, and different um, foreign policy to one which very much, I think, sits within the uh, the kind of mainstream of democratic thinking about the state of the world. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media pages or ours. And even better, giving us a review or a rating on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned, as well as to Anu's book on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Anu Bradford, Jana Pulierin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Hannah Ballmann and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm-hmm.